Hi, this is Malia Cromer, director of the Goucher College Poll, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, a source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy viewed favorably by an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. And today, as we continue our December preview of policy issues we see coming up in the 2023 session, we welcome our guest and policy team colleague, Sarah Sample. Sarah, thanks for being with us and welcome. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. The podcast was one of the first things that introduced me to Mako, so I am thrilled. I'm a little starstruck. And you still, <laughs> you still decided to sign on with Mako, so I guess that's a good thing, Michael. More than signing on. I think you guys are stuck with me. (laughs) You love to see it. it. Yes. Okay. So, Sarah, tell our listeners what areas you cover in your portfolio at MAKO, because that's basically what we want to get into in this episode, what you see being the biggest issues in your portfolio for the 2023 session. Yeah, no problem. Okay. So, for my portfolio areas, I cover government liability in courts, public information and ethics, public safety and corrections, and public health and human services. So it's a lot of different buckets. And right now we're just you know paying attention to what issues we think might come up during a legislative session as it is upon us. Yeah. I mean, I think as, as our many loyal listeners know, the county governments are affected by an awful lot of different things that come up through legislation and policy discussions in Annapolis and in the General Assembly. So as a member of the policy team at MAKO, everybody has a pretty wide portfolio with lots of different components. But it, it feels like that's lent itself well for this sort of December ramp up that we're trying to do to, to bring in each member of the policy team and try and cover this bit by bit. So our, our goal today is to try and talk about these health and human service issues and some of the public safety stuff. And we'll see what else we get into. But like that's that's kind of our goal for, for today is cover all this stuff. And uh, there's there's some interesting stuff on the horizon. I think it's be a good chat. Right. So we want to talk about public health, especially where we are with the COVID pandemic and what feels like a really rough flu season so far. A little bit about environmental health issues. And then we'll get into some public safety stuff, both the accountability issues that we've gotten into before, but also a bit about our local jails. And then we'll see what else we run across. That sound OK to you, Sarah? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So the weather is getting colder, and that tends to mean that we're watching for the flu and other related stuff. And in the last couple of years, we're also watching for an uptick in COVID. What are our health officers seeing on that front, Sarah? What are you hearing out there about COVID and where we are? You've got the regular flu. We've got COVID. We've got things like norovirus and what we've been seeing more recently, RSV, Um, especially as far as RSV peaking very early in our season. Um, you know, so when we talk about going into the flu season, it's really looking at all those things. Um, and it's great that we have the dashboards because, you know, the health departments are tracking um, the different strands and the different types of the flu. And that's great because that helps them be able to see if we have a spike happening in one more than the other. I think that also helps in terms of if there are mutations. And that's why this comes up every single fall is that these viruses are, are mutating. And then once we get into the fall and winter, You've got people going inside. They're around each other. Um, you've got the holidays, so people are getting together in large groups. So the dashboards are they are just super effective for watching. Um, have we seen anything that could create 
or pose a more sort of imminent threat or danger to the public, um, you know, especially as it relates to things that have been incredibly problematic over the last couple of years, like COVID, recent RSV, RSV uh, early spikes. Yeah, the dashboards are great. And I know the state did that with COVID. And I think it was really helpful to see exactly where we had these outbreaks occurring across the state. And it's really good to see that they're doing the same thing with the flu. You mentioned the mutations. I think that's a really good indication of you know, where the resources need to go, where we're seeing outbreaks and where we need to probably get some more vaccines and get people to take the flu vaccine. Because right now, I mean, we hear about the flu-ster, so we're dealing with COVID and the flu. And so to have that dashboard and that data is super, super helpful, at least in my mind, so you can get that visual of, of where we need resources and where we need to get folks to, to get on board and get the flu-ster or the flu shot or their COVID booster, hopefully all of them. But that is significant, and I think it's great that, that Maryland is doing that and continuing that trend from COVID. Yeah, you know, and I would even say that one of the major things is that it's really the stress on the resources, and that's something that we saw during the pandemic um, with uh, with COVID, is that once you get to a capacity-level issue, um, that's when things can get dangerous, and that's when it's really difficult to try and, um, you know, just take care of the routine things that aren't novel, like, you know, COVID was when it happened in 2019. So the dashboards really help focus on where are those spikes and, you know, trying to also, this takes us into our next point about we've got the CDC has just issued new guidelines um, for, you know, masking and things like that. And that speaks to trying to manage the resources in our hospital facilities is that, you know, if we can take some preventative um, measures, then those resources don't get depleted as quickly. And we don't have people who are um, having further complications from something that is fairly routine. I guess all these things are sort of conspiring against us and, and, our colleagues and, and you know, friends who are on the front lines in public health that we're, we're seeing, you know, with the colder weather, some of these things start to, we're, we're used to this being the season for, for sort of uh, airborne illnesses to become more of a problem. We're used to this being flu season. The, the RSV spike recently was worrisome, but it seems like this year the, the flu is going to be a really serious one. There have been some pretty scary looking numbers about flu flu cases being reported as as serious and we don't know yet but there are some indications that whether it's a new strain of covid or whether it's just colder weather brings more people indoors more of the time and we have more spread there but all these things seem to be sort of up in the ante on this this sort of high stakes game of trying to keep our neighbors and friends around us safe from from all these sort of things so that's that's kind of where we are on the public health front, you know, feeling like we're on the back end of the COVID pandemic, but still there's a lot of indicators that are that are worrisome. That's why the CDC's jumped in. Right. So we know that that's all still going on, and that's depressing, right, that we, we continue to have to talk about COVID, but it's the reality. And then, of course, when you combine that with the flu, things can seem pretty dire. But we know we have a lot of great folks on the front lines, a lot of people really working hard on this. So, Sarah, where does that leave us for the session ahead when it comes to, to public health? Well, so I think when it came to dealing with um, some of the complications from uh, COVID, there was a ton of federal funding that was coming in to help manage that. Um, and, you know, as that funding is winding down, we've got a lot of programs that were put in place that um, we could potentially be looking at a situation where we don't have the, uh, the funding in place to continue to take the steps that we need to in terms of public health. So, so funding um, for 
local health departments, I think, is going to be a really, really important topic. And that showed up in the legislative, um, the DLS uh, legislative papers as well. Right. So we know that there's a, a major difference uh, in federal funding versus what's available once COVID funding dries up. Right. We know that all that federal money flowed into the state to help combat the COVID pandemic. We had the CARES Act. We had other measures from Congress, including a lot of money that went right to our local health departments, our first responders and to our schools, all to better prepare them for the sorts of activities that couldn't be shut down even during a pandemic. So there's a big difference. And once that, you know, you turn that tap off of all the federal money, um, you know, things start to come, the reality sets in of where we are and what the state can do. So I think we are in a different spot than where we were even last year when we still had a lot of federal money flowing in specifically to fight the pandemic and to help our frontline folks, you know, continue to do what they needed to do. Because, again, you can't shut down some of these activities. So so that is a big problem, Sarah. And of course, that creates a gap and a hole. Right. And so you have all this money and then it just dries up. I mean, what is the state looking to do here and, and what do we need at the local level to, to continue these operations the way we set them up? Well, I would say the federal money going away to deal with a problem that is going to be ongoing is something that we need to address. Um, I think it's also important when you look back at the history of um, our public health funding in Maryland. And before the pandemic started, we were already pretty drastically underfunded. So I'd say that's sort of the situation that we're in now is we're needing to not just resolve um, the finances that we need to bring together for the new problems, but also, you know, there are other programs that were underfunded even before that. So I think that's going to be a focus. Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, our state's recent history of funding our front lines of public health and our local health departments. It's not that strong. Right. If the state has has certainly struggled on that front. Is that is that right? Is the way you see it? Uh, Yes. Um, Thoughtful pause as I compose myself. But, yeah, I mean, I think (laughs) that could even be a little bit of an understatement. I mean, so the core funds um, going to the local health departments. that's not specific to it's not grant money that's specific to a problem. It's a lot of um, operating funds and keeping the lights on and hiring essential staff. And if we go, I will try to stay out of the weeds on this. But this is also one of the reasons why I like this podcast so much is that we do tend to say that and that we like to dive down into the weeds. Um, but so bear with me for a moment. So like as far as, you know, local health department funding in 1997, they had set um, a minimum that was you know, this is the core funding for health departments. And then I believe it was 2009 when they cut um, cut below that minimum that was established 24 years um, before in 1997. And so that was a situation that we were in leading up to the pandemic. And so um, one thing I, I will point out, because this was also in one of the, um, the uh, legislative papers that had come out recently, is that the 2023 um, budget, I think funds were reinstated to the level of 2008. And that is the same, I believe, for 2025 and 2026. Um, so that's funding consistent with 14 years ago. Um, and so when you look at the new landscape of issues, crisis level problems like um, opioids, COVID, mental health crisis, uh, MPOX, which is formerly monkeypox, that just really doesn't line up, especially when you think, too, about workforce issues and um, inflation, uh, cost of living changes. I mean, it really you can see as I'm going on, it gets to a point where it's a little scary. If we're going to rely on these local health departments to to um, be able to do a heavy lift, you know, for the next crisis. So we're not even sure what that might be. Um, those numbers just don't don't seem like they add up. Right. right. I mean, I, I know. You know, from 
from from my days as a as a as an instructor doing economics classes there's there's some terminology in the economics world of real versus nominal and like we might have gotten you know FY23 might have put that core funding for local health departments at nominally the same dollars as 2008 which is still nothing to shout about right i mean we've we've caught parity with 15 years ago is not exactly you put up the mission accomplished banner, but even that, even getting back to those same number of dollars, there's no way that that accomplishes the same buying power in, in, yeah. in today's dollars just for inflation and the cost of hiring people and buying staples and, like you said, leaving the lights on, not to mention all these new and and difficult things that we are asking of our local health departments mm-hmm. to do to to protect our residents and, and make sure everybody has information and vaccinations and all the things that they might need through a clinic or through local public health workers. It's just the duty has become bigger. The bill has gotten higher and the state is just barely getting back to the money amount from 15 years mm-hmm. ago. Right. I mean, so that you put all that together, we're not, we're not, we weren't in a great shape before COVID and the idea of the federal funds sort of dissolving is going to leave us in a super shaky spot. Yeah. And what I would say further compounds that is that, you know, what we're seeing, what I'm seeing across all of my issues is that um, getting good staff and keeping good staff is a problem. And that is absolutely um, an issue with local health departments and just getting, you know, because these are specific qualifications that medical um, personnel need to have. And we're having a hard time getting the bodies and keeping them. But at the same time, you've got, they can be paid more in the private sector. So then we can't get the bodies. They go to the private sector. We're now in a situation where we're trying to, we might be needing to contract the private sector. And that ends up being exponentially more than if we had had the funding, better funding in place that was consistent with where we are now in terms of the workforce needs. Yeah, and that's something we see across government, right? Trying to compete with the private sector is also uh, often a, a losing game. And so that's not just here, but it's everywhere. But particularly here, I think this skill set is one that you cannot just replicate and, and hire bodies off the street. You have to have specific people and, and you are competing with the, with the private sector. So this is a tricky situation and um, hopefully there's a longer term fix here. Counties definitely have a stake in all of that. So, Sarah, I want to shift gears a little bit and um, get into within the local health departments. There is an office for environmental health, and they do a variety of permitting and testing and measurements of water quality, food inspections, things like that. What's happening in that portfolio? What's going on there? I know that's often pretty active in the General Assembly in terms of legislation dealing with environmental health. Yeah, there's a lot. Some of those issues actually do get pretty complicated, too. Okay, so so let's let's do the the sort of drive-by version then, right? Okay, without getting super deep though, environmental health is interesting. It's a little different than running clinics and the the broader public health mission, but environmental health is part of the charge that our our local health departments carry out. These are different functions, but yeah, we we do have some challenges. So let's 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 walk through that at the at this sort of you know thin level, right? Well, wade in. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess just in, you know, I sort of reference this, but staffing um, is a really big issue there as well um, in terms of having the environmental health officers in place that can go out and do the inspections um, for things like pools, well and septic, um, uh, different restaurants and things like that. So I think that'll also be focused on a sort of a workforce type initiative that's trying to get um, more people in these positions um, at the appropriate um, pay grade so that we can keep them. 
All right. So, so once again, we're bumping into, this is a recurring theme. Last week we had, we had our colleague Brianna January talking about education and the public sector workforce. And this kept bobbing up the, the difficulty in hiring and retaining staff is a challenge. It's, it's a specific thing in local health departments. Now I'm the one at risk of getting, getting too deep in the weeds as I sometimes want to do, but um, there's a specific issue here that local health departments are sort of a weird, um, they're sort of a weird amalgamation of county and state responsibilities, but for the most part, employees in the local health departments are state employees. So those position descriptions are in the state personnel system. We can't just go out and say, well, we haven't been able to hire somebody for 52 grand, let's try 67 grand because the grade and step in the state system says this is what the job is. So that's, that's kind of uh, technically above our pay grade, so to speak, uh, to try and reclassify those things ourselves locally. Mm. That, that's an added twist in the local health departments where we don't have complete control over the positions and, and the hiring. But with public health issues, if these are the staff who are going out to make sure things are safe, before someone gets an approval or a permit, now you're into the business of like something gets held up, right? If, if there's no staff person who can go out and, I don't know, do water testing. You mentioned well and, and septic is one of those things. If there's no one there who can go out and perform the safe water test needed to give approval to a project, now you've got a project that's delayed, maybe weeks and months, and that, that can become a big deal. Yeah, and that's something that we've talked about a lot um, with the uh, environmental health directors and the health officers is that, that that pay change that you were talking about at the state level, you know, there's a lot of other smaller issues that have sort of been compounded by the lack of bodies in the positions. Um, and so that is what most of the groups see as a really major priority is that if we can get those those um, pay levels changed at the state level, then that will help you know, a little bit of a domino effect in terms of dealing with some of the other issues that have, that have come up. Right. So this isn't, you know, just bureaucrats being unresponsive. I, I was recently at a conference with a, a bunch of folks in the ag industry. And, you know, we often hear about people who are upset because they don't feel like they should have to have, you know, full restroom facilities in a barn that hosts a wedding. Right. And there is this tension exactly. between public health and free enterprise. So, you know, they often complain about that. They often complain about, you know, it, it takes too long to get my permit. But this is not just bureaucrats being unresponsive. It's it's our inability to actually hire the people to do the job. And if you're in the health department, you can't just sign off and, and okay a project without verifying that it's safe for the people who are affected, no matter how impatient the builder or the, the business owner is, right, Sarah? And that is I think it just increases this tension between public health and free enterprise. And that's something that's concerning. But I think people need to understand the root of the problem. It's not just that people are being lazy. It's that they literally don't have the bodies to, to go out and do this stuff in a timely manner sometimes. And that creates many problems. Yeah, exactly. So I guess what I would say in terms of um, you know legislation in this area, one thing that I had seen from last year is that they were there was an attempt to like if you're, um, you know, like going back to the uh, food vendors, um, if your revenue um, was, let's say, I think it was 15000 then you were required to have an inspection. And there was an attempt to actually, you know, and that could be for bathrooms, running water, things like that, uh, food safety. Um, there was an attempt to raise that um, level of revenue to, I believe it was $25,000 last year. And you can see how from a health director's standpoint or an environmental health director's standpoint, um, that's very risky. And that's sort of it, it might lessen the amount of inspections that have to be done. But that's 
risky. That's not in the best interest of the public. And so as an environmental health director, um, you know, that was something that wasn't, you know, the most viable solution we'd be hoping for. But I think um, still so there have been efforts to make some changes, but I think finding the right change is definitely going to be, um, be a priority here. Yeah, I, I think this is it, it's an interesting area because I think a reasonable person can see both points of view, right? I mean, I've got sympathy for the the person who works in the county Department of Environmental Health and is charged with food safety inspections, right? And the idea of we need to get someone out every so often to go to places that are serving people, I don't know, you know, ice cream and dairy products, the kind of thing that if you don't handle them wisely and sensibly, people can get really sick. So, like, that's an important mission. That's a public health mission, and you want to take that really seriously. And, you know, you know Kevin, you were mentioning, you know, being, being at an event talking about agriculture issues and this kind of stuff pops up. I, I also see the point of view of folks who are running, you know, what we call these, you know, cottage foods, that, you know, like the little store on the farm where it's just a way to help the bottom line of a small farm, help your family get by. You sell a little jam or jelly or whatever, but, you know, and, and your, your, your theory there is I don't need to have somebody come in every year and do this pointless permitting thing so that I can sell strawberry jam. I, like, I see both those points of view, and I think reasonable people can. Um, but, like, where do you draw the line between what's worth the oversight and what things do you sort of just let go by? Right. And you, you mentioned it, Michael. So, you know, you're talking about farms and, and the term is value added agriculture. And I know you love that term, Michael, right? And that's yeah. maybe, maybe that's the first time you've heard it. It's, I mean, just, just since you came to this event, it's the first time I've heard that as a term of, I mean, this happens in, this happens in our line of work all the time. Suddenly there's a, there's a rebranding, right? So, okay. Value added agriculture. So that's, that's, that's like the jelly jars. Is that also like, like having a winery or a, yeah. a bed and breakfast or a, hayride tour or i mean what about what about growing what about growing cannabis apparently we're going to do that in maryland now too right is that is that part of it I yeah i think it's it, i think it's all encompassing right Probably, and it yeah, continues yeah. it continues to grow cottage foods as you guys mentioned it's a big part of that and i think that the idea with value added ag is that you're using something that you produce on the farm and then turning it around and selling something that's more profitable so you mentioned jam uh, if you grow grapes on a on a farm you could turn that into you know, making wine, all these ideas and, and all this stuff. And look, I think everybody wants our farm industry to succeed. And we understand that they need to think outside the box. But you really have this tension, especially when it comes to stuff that you mentioned, dairy products, all kinds of cottage foods. That stuff is really important to be handled correctly. And if you're not doing that and no one's checking on it, people can get sick. So yeah. I understand the tension, right, Sarah? And, and we, yeah. this does bubble up. But at the same time, we know that we, if we had more bodies, I think we could be more expedient and do this in, in, a, in a better way to get these permits turned around, to do these inspections quicker. But the reality is we just don't. So hopefully the General Assembly can find a way, and of course we'll be at the table, to, to increase the availability of, of workforce by providing more funding, doing more things to help recruit and retain. That's going to be a big focus, I think, particularly for environmental health directors uh, and our health departments generally in, in the next session. Yeah, I mean, from what I'm hearing, there is really a true sense um, of desire to have collaboration on this. I mean, Michael sort of just pointed it out. You know, you want to give um, farm properties an opportunity to um, bring in revenue, um, you know, and so there already might maybe in a financial situation that's tough. And then, 
you know, you've got the standard, you know, trying to have this, you know, standard where it's going to cost them a lot of money to get all these permits and inspections done. Um, you want to keep people safe, but you want to also keep the market accessible for them. So I think um, it's certainly not terribly straightforward, but it's something where, at least on the local level, there is a lot of interest in collaboration in terms of finding the right solution. And, and to be clear, we're not talking about lemonade stands here, right? I mean, we've, we've seen... <laughs> We've seen bills on lemonade stands from Big Lemonade make their way across the country, right? We're not talking about lemonade stands that's a little too small. No, we're talking more about permanent roadside restaurant situations. Right. And where do you draw the line between lemonade stand and some of the new, um, you know, sort of the evolution in, in mobile food um, offerings? Yep. Value-added agriculture, right? Value-added ag. Okay, so we've gotten through a bunch here on the front end. I think it's a good spot to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into more of the public safety issues. We're going to talk about uh, other stuff in Sarah's portfolio as we look ahead to 2023. Again, public safety. We'll get into police accountability. We'll get into local jails, all that and more after the break. Nationwide is a proud platinum partner of the Maryland Association of Counties. Nationwide is a market leader in providing supplemental retirement savings programs for public employees. They have been serving public sector employees and their families for nearly 40 years. Their programs include 457B, 401A, and post-employment health plans, and are comprehensive, incorporating investment, education, and administrative service solutions for governmental employers. Visit www.nrs4u.com or contact Debbie Turner at turned11 at nationwide.com. Retirement representatives are registered representatives of Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Sarah Sample. So, Sarah, we did a pretty good deep dive with Hillary Rooley to talk about our body cameras initiative and the Public Information Act generally a couple weeks ago. I know you heard that and you talk with Hillary regularly. What did you think about that episode before we get into these issues? Oh, it's so eye opening. I mean, so many details, so much background on why it's complicated. I mean, she's really a wealth of knowledge in that area. And so I would just, yeah, definitely worth a listen. So, so as we as we want to start the back end of today's episode, let's talk about public safety stuff, and we'll sort of ask listeners if if you want the deep dive on this issue with body cameras and the Public Information Act, dig back a couple episodes in our archive and listen to that full episode. We'll glance on it here and say it's something we're interested in. We expect there's going to be a bill. We think that'll be a lively debate, but. There's another piece of body cameras. We we know the state has a law that says all the officers in a law enforcement agency who are sort of public facing need to be equipped with a body camera in about two years time by the beginning of 2025. So we've got a window of time to do that. Um, part of what MAKO and I think our, our partners in local government and law enforcement are looking at is just on the implementation and the equipment and so forth. So let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, Sarah? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think ultimately the goal is to get this rolled out in the next two years in as orderly of a fashion as possible. Um, so, yeah. So with implementation, um, you know, the costs associated with the body worn camera rollout, it's not just the cameras, obviously. This is um, servers for storage, and this is software for redaction. This is the staff that comes with it, and this is also the cybersecurity 
um, to protect what is going to be very, very sensitive um, information. So when you think about implementing this at a county level, you know, we have some um, some counties that have, you know, maybe an, a department with four or five um, individuals. And so the operating budget for a department that looks like that is not necessarily the same one that's going to have um, the ability to to leverage such a, um, a tech heavy piece of infrastructure. And so in those circumstances, we want to have uh, an opt in potential at the state level. So the state takes some leadership in getting some contracts squared away, and then the locals can opt into that state contract, you know, if if that's something they feel like they need. And then we've also got some significantly larger counties who've um, they've already begun their build out, you know, because this is uh, legislation that was passed previously, and they've got their programs um, underway. And so we want them to be able to carry on. But really, for the ones um, that this is a, a very significant technological lift for um, fairly small. Uh, small departments and, you know, it's wanting to stick with the spirit of the law, but wanting to make sure that, it, you know, the budget for that technical lift doesn't dwarf their entire operational budget. And, and possibly yeah, and even in, in in the best case scenario, right, and I'll, I'll let you get into it too, Michael, we, we'd like to see a situation where we can pull together and set up a, a central redaction service, because I know that's very expensive as well. Oh, yeah. Well, so to really understand the expense that's associated with um, redaction, I mean, it, it's really complicated. So and I can walk you through it. Hillary did significantly more justice to it, justice to it than I think that I will now. Um, but just to give you sort of a technical understanding of what it takes. So um, a video makes it more complicated than paper or email. And that's where the majority of the public information um, protection laws came in. And so, for instance, if you've got a request that comes in, um, the requirement of the custodian is that they have to protect um, the identity of, let's say it's a victim, someone who made that police call. Um, and so it's not just protecting the identity, it's also protecting their location. And so when a squad car, you know, comes to, um, you know, let's say it's a domestic violence uh, call, when they're looking at the house and the area, all that information is getting picked up on the footage. And the same thing when you go into their house. And so it's one thing to think you're protecting their ID, which is, you know, their face, and that's potentially a birthmark or a tattoo. But once you're in that person's living space, it, it could be any number of things um, in that space. It could be a computer screen, a diploma on the wall. It could be a school T-shirt on a couch. Um, it really, really opens up a number of risky opportunities for something to be to be missed by a custodian. And I think another thing that Hillary pointed out in her explanation was that the custodians in Maryland, are personally personally liable for those mistakes. Um, so that's why they want to be so careful um, and take so much time to do this. And then it's not just the custodian's time that ends up being um, taken up in this. It's also uh, lawyers and police officers that were, were able to add um, context. So you can see in a video, you know, this might be a victim, but this might be an informant. You know, there's a lot of different things that, that could be going on there. So you need the officer's involvement, lawyer's involvement, and the custodian. So looking at a 40 minute video, um, you know, could easily turn into six people for 40 hours. And you can see how that that cost, that taxpayer burden would end up going up fairly significantly. But then it would also you know, put the victim at risk if something is is accidentally missed. So I think in, in terms of that, I think the state solution there, you know, could be maybe it's hire 10 full time people at the state level to take care of it all. Um, make sure we hire and train 10 excellent people rather than hoping every small town and county has their own legal staff and custodians who perfectly know what images need to be covered and pulled out. 
So I think it's trying to figure out a little bit more of that that lift that can be incredibly risky and costly. Yeah, so I mean, I think we we stitch all these pieces together. Like we're we're two years away from this being a mandated piece of equipment in use for every officer. So we've got a window of time to get it together. And even though this is the county podcast, I think maybe the most compelling argument for something like this really lies at the smallest level. You have some of our, you know, within our sister organization, the Maryland Municipal League, they represent cities and towns and have dozens of local police departments, some of which I'm sure are as small as one, two, three human beings. And and the idea that each and every one of them will be charged with, all right, go out and do this procurement and get the right kind of equipment and then come up with a storage solution for all this presumably digital footage. It's going to be stored on, we're not, we're not talking about in a, in, a, uh, in a cabinet. This is probably going to be stored on a server someplace. And if that is a plugged in server of some kind, then you've got to make sure you've got cybersecurity concerns attended to what and whatnot. Right. So, and the technical difficulty and, and sort of professional difficulty of marshalling when you share that information and in what form to people who request it. Whether we get those laws changed and, and fluffed up or not, there still is going to be a public information act component to all this. You put all this stuff together, the idea of the state leading the way in some start, smart way and saying, okay, you know, here, here's a contract you can ride on. Here's a storage solution you can sign up for. Whether we have all those details this year or whether we need a little longer flight path for all that to come together through legislation, I, I think is TBA. But the idea of doing this wisely over the next two years, it's the right kind of thing for MAKO to be getting behind. And I think we'll have support from the sheriffs and chiefs of police and, and from the, the cities and towns as well. So I, I think, I think there's a lot of sense to some plan where we do this, you know, do this together and, and let the locals sort of have a good option to ride along with. All right. So just to expand this a little bit. So it sounds like, you know, some burden on a state agency. And I guess, Sarah, that would either be the police training commission or maybe the state police. Yeah, that's the idea. I think some of those details will get worked out as we put the legislation together and start working with some of our partners. Um, but, yes, that's the idea. All right. So the tricky technical side is the Public Information Act, the PIA, and the basic nuts and bolts is the equipment and storage, all as we are only two years away from this being an all-hands deck, all hands on deck approach with with every officer cameraed up. That sounds like a big lift. But again, I think with with the right folks sitting down at the table and bringing something to the legislature, we should be able to move the ball forward here in a way that makes sense for everyone. So, Shara, I want to shift gears a little bit again and talk a little bit about police accountability. Over the last few years, we've heard a lot about this. Uh, accountability for police in the legislature. You're picking up this portfolio as we are onto the implementation stages of this whole process. Does any of this turn into a third wave of legislation? If you have your crystal ball in front of you, what do you think this turns into for the 2023 session? Well, I think major things that were question marks for a lot of our county attorneys that were in the process of rolling this out. Um, whether or not legislatively people are going to be re- willing and wanting to deal with these, you know, and, and whether or not they even need to be dealt with legislatively, I think is a is a question. But I know it's one of the things that came up with um, was understanding the, the definition of misconduct. So obviously we have the independent investigations mm-hmm. division that deals with um, 
a death a fatality from police interaction. Um, but then when it comes to the police accountability boards, the administrative charging committees and the trial boards, understanding um, what kind of misconduct will be going through that process. Is it a minor fender bender um, or is it something more significant? And I think that there was some people wanting a little bit more clarity on that for sure. And then I think one of the other issues yeah. was um, trying to uh, to get some of the boards filled um, and making sure that we have the appropriate people um, with the right qualifications that are also willing. And I know when it came to the trial boards, that was um, there were a lot of locations that were having a shortage of um, of judges that were willing um, and able to to sit on it because it had to be retired judges. And I know that um, there's a potential for um, the state to train up some administrative law judges um, to potentially fill those roles. But those are some of the complications. What that turns into legislatively, I think I think we'll we'll see. Yeah, I, I think our we, we dedicated, I'm trying to remember, maybe a half of a podcast episode, maybe even a full episode to talking about some of those challenges at the implementation level. I mean, that's, that's where the counties are at this point. The, the big bill got passed in in the 2021 session with a sort of a lead time rollout to get the nuts and bolts together. The state didn't get its regulations and guidance pulled together as rapidly as we in the counties had hoped. But we, we now are at the point where the counties have have formed and created their local sort of civilian-driven oversight bodies. Each county has to have a, a an, an administrative charging committee or an, an, uh, an accountability board and a charging committee in each county government that nominally serves these oversight purposes on behalf of your police department and then others that serve within the county, including like your cities and towns. Um, and just like you, you mentioned, Sarah, we have been hearing since the summer, and I think it's still continuing, some concerns about just the ability to get willing people to sit in those capacities. We, we got a, a bit of a curveball when the, the state police training commission issued the details of what they thought was appropriate training for the residents who were going to serve on the, the charging committees. And, and it was a pretty thorough and pretty strict training regimen. And I, at least anecdotally, I think we've heard a number of counties saying, well, we thought we had our body filled, but with the details and that requirement for that strict regimen of training, we had people say, sorry, I can't do that. I was willing to be a volunteer, but I can't take an entire week off of my job to come do five straight eight-hour days of training with no exceptions. So we're left in a tricky spot where we want to do this right, but it, it may be some of the specifics need some attention. I, I don't think we want untrained people in these roles. That's not what we're asking for. But mm -hmm. can we find a way to do this in a, in a practical way that lets the willing resident, you know, give her time without necessarily sacrificing too much economically? Yeah. And one thing I would say is that um, you know, the issues that we're bringing up, these are issues that are across all of the jurisdictions, large and small, as far as the counties go. Right. So counties are certainly concerned here. And and do you think, Sarah, there's there's an approach that the state could take that might help? I mean, what do you see as a solution here as we head into to 2023 session? Yeah, I mean, I think Michael sort of just touched on it, especially as it relates to the administrative law judges, um, probably through the Office of Administrative Hearings. You know, they could get a batch of people trained up um, to chair these trial boards um, on some kind of rotating basis, you know, so that there's, you know, it's not having to recreate the wheel every time. And we've got um, a little bit of a pool to to 
collect people from. Yeah, I think something like that. I mean, we're not we're not exactly reinventing the wheel in, with this idea. I mean, there are a variety of technical capacities where governments realize that not every small town has a person who can perform this technical function. So you have someone serve as like this, this term of art as a circuit rider where you cover a whole region and you drop in and you, you work with one town or one County for a couple of days and then you move on to the next, you know, the next area in your region who could use your help. Maybe, you know, maybe you could get a, an, an administrative law judge who becomes sort of an expert in sitting as the chair of a trial board when a, a local law enforcement agency needs one and you have one of these tricky cases. Okay. It's going to go to a trial board. You, you dial up the person who covers whatever Western Maryland. She goes out and does a couple of days in Allegheny County for this thing with this deputy sheriff. And then a few days later, maybe she, she provides presides over a trial board in a municipal case in Oakland or whatnot, you know, but sort of somebody covers that region of the state, somebody else is in the lower shore or whatever. Maybe, maybe you do it that way rather than having each county on its own to just dig up people locally who are, who have the technical capacity and, you know, I guess maybe the economic capacity to, to give their time this way. Some orderly way of doing this probably makes sense. I don't know if that's a bill. Um, it, it could be, I don't know, could be any number of things. It could be something as, 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 you know, limited as just a, a letter or a statement of intent or mm. some language in the budget that comes through this year. There's a variety of ways to try and move the gears in that direction, I think. Yeah. And I think, and you touched on, you know, that's an interesting idea, the idea of like having it regionally um, delegated. But again, you know, that would take some agreement from state policymakers um, that this is worth their effort. Um, and, you know, our goal is to be able to um, run the oversight system the way the legislators want it to be run. Um, you know, we're not resisting that goal. It's just we need a practical way to make it work and, and finding some solutions uh, would be good. Yeah, and I agree that's a better place to be in than just resisting the bills that are already passed, right? So I think that that's we're trying to come to the table here with practical solutions for real world problems that we're seeing. I don't think anyone intended for these problems and issues to exist when they pass these bills, but the reality on the ground is that we're seeing them. So it seems like we got to do something, as you mentioned, Michael, it might not take a bill, but there has to be some lever to pull to try and address some of these concerns and issues that we're seeing in every single county. Yeah, and, you know, we can mention at this point, um, our sister organization, um, the Maryland Municipals League, they'll be working on some flexibility where a city or a town wanted to create its own oversight board, um, and they could do so rather than just send their cases through the county's board. Um, I don't think our counties would have a worry with that idea. No, I, I haven't heard anyone in the county community worried about that as any sort of a turf battle, and I think that would be the concern, but it's not a concern that I'm hearing. I don't know whether there's going to be much appetite to change the whole structure this soon, but I see why some of the cities and towns may be interested in doing that. Michael, do you agree? I mean, you've been working on this for the last few years. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. Like, you put all this stuff together. Like, you know, we've got we've got these sort of implementation concerns, but again, we're talking about a process that's literally just getting off the ground, right? I mean, we were, we were duty bound to have our county structures in place by just this past July one. A lot of our jurisdictions have not even held a trial board yet. A lot of them have not yet even had to convene their local oversight bodies. So we're still like in an infancy stage. Um, maybe if, if this is the level of stuff that, that, that we and other stakeholders are hearing about in implementation, 
that might not move the needle for legislators to for us to go in and do an omnibus fix the whole thing bill with with five, ten, fifteen, twenty different changes to what they did in twenty twenty one. Maybe this is a a scalpel solution rather than a you know than a sledgehammer. Maybe maybe this ends up being uh you know some some budget language in one of the state agencies to look at this as a solution or rip, you know a- answer questions about how you plan to roll this, these sort of things out um maybe something short of passing a bill uh may may end up being what stakeholders like us need so i'm yeah i'm i'm not i'm not sold this is going to be the big attention grabber uh, you know sarah you made mention of independent investigations and maybe prosecution that itself might be an attention grabber on a different magnitude than all the stuff we're talking about put together. Yeah, I agree. I mean, so we're we're going to be on the ground you know, talking about this as people want to discuss it and want feedback from the county standpoint. But I don't think there are any serious signs pointing towards a big effort on this in 23. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. And so, Sarah, to shift again, you mentioned at the top of the show that part of our public safety portfolio is running local jails. I suspect there are technical and complicated issues there, too, and we don't want to dive too deeply, but let's do the quick skim version of things that might come up in legislation for the next session. Yeah, so I think when it comes to talking about the jails and the issues that are coming up there, I think sort of setting the table a little bit in terms of um, who the county jail's um, house uh, might be in order. And so, you know, there's pretrial individuals, and these are people accused of a crime um, not released but held on trial. Um, or in some other alternative monitoring system, um, that could be house arrest. Um, and then you've got offenders sentenced to a year or less. They usually serve in county jail rather than the state prison. Um, and then occasionally offenders sentenced to longer term than one year, but specifically sentenced to serve in a local facility, um, which is typically a decision by a judge. Um, and that's how it happens sometimes. Right. So, so like the, the rule of thumb is the, the sort of most hardcore inmates and offenders ought to be in a state facility. The, the folks who are on, you know, 15 year terms, life terms, that sort of stuff. And, and most of your more, I mean, you know, violent offenders, um, who may have long term uh, problems and issues and so forth, they're mostly in the state facilities. That for years has led people to feel like, well, running a local jail is easy. It's just sort of like a little drunk tank. It's, it's low level stuff. It's short term. It's not that big of a deal. But the reality is that, that I think a lot of the issues that confront the state prison population um, are showing up more and more in our county jail population, even with people who are only going to be in our care for 120 days. Um, many of them still have some tricky issues, right? Yeah, so between state and county um, uh, inmate facilities, um, they can be pretty different. But it turns out some of the toughest problems in county jails are that many of the same problems of the long-term population are still present in our short-term facilities. And we really are not well-equipped to handle that at all. And, and Sarah, I assume there you're talking about people dealing with addiction, drug abuse. Those are a lot of the times what we see in county jails. And I think that's what you're speaking to when you're saying we're not well equipped to handle that. We don't have the resources there. Yeah. So it's two very connected problems of substance abuse and mental health, which are fairly often um, connected to the reasons why the person ends up um, on the wrong side of the law to begin with. But yes, we have an awful lot of people in county jails and detention centers who, truth be told, really need to be in a different kind of facility than a local jail to effectively deliver the, the rehabilitation that they need. 
Yeah, and I, I, I know we have seen legislation on these questions in, in recent years. It's, this isn't a brand new issue, but it's one that's still, still ripe because it's basically unresolved. You know, one of the bills that we saw within the last few years was a state sponsored program to make sure that people coming into local jails who show up with an opioid addiction and, and what seems to be the most effective treatment for their problem is like the term of art medication assisted treatment. Um, that, you know, that's, uh, methadone or, or other medications along those lines to help people, um, you know, withstand or, or defeat cravings and, and, and stuff like that. That, that's part of the mix of what we're talking about legislative here, legislatively here too, right? Yeah, and, and we've heard the story before. Now we have the program and a mandate, but no money to support it. Is that is that what's going on, Sarah? Yes, exactly. Um, so a little bit of a mess. Um, the policy had a lot of support. Um, how to make it happen is still not fully solved. Um, do we still need a bill or a grant program, um, a funding formula? You know, these are all ideas out there. Um, but it's definitely uh, another budget and funding question, um, bottom line. And I know that we have a, another issue where inmates in local jails or in state prisons suddenly lose their Medicaid eligibility as a ward of the state. And that's a that's a big problem. I know that at the National Association of Counties, they're looking at this. But to, to have someone come into a jail or a prison and lose their Medicaid eligibility just because they're a ward of the state, that certainly creates problems on the ground at the state and the local level, right? I feel like I'm feel like I'm constantly saying, you know, go back into the archive from the Conduit Street podcast because we we touched on this. But you know, earlier this year, we had Congressman David Trone as a guest on the podcast, and he he covered a lot of ground, had a lot of different things that he wanted to talk about. But this was one of those topics that that he's working with a coalition within the Congress Um this is basically a federal issue. Medicaid is the contours of the statewide Medicaid program are basically as a component of the federal Medicaid program. So at its heart, this is a federal issue. Congressman Trone trying to you know, build the coalition. Uh, folks like NACO and, and our association are very much behind it. But we need the federal Medicaid rules changed to sort of reflect that reality. His, you know, the Western Maryland district has a number of these facilities. So you know, he's he's looking at the contours of his district and being responsive to it. But what he's saying is exactly what NACO and MACO are trying to say on this, that uh, folks need medical care. And it's crazy that the day before they come into our local facility, they're eligible for Medicaid. The day when they walk out, they'll once again be eligible. But while they're in the middle, suddenly it's entirely the state, you know, the, the, the county and the state's problem to tend to those needs. That's a federal issue more than more than a state issue, but still an important one. Yeah, and I would add to that that, um, you know, from the steering committee for this bill, like that have been meeting to uh, work through implementation from the state and the county level, there, I believe it was six counties that would be applying um, for a waiver to potentially make some of those funds available uh, for inmates. Um, but so Medicaid, you know, that specifically doesn't look like Maryland um, legislature issue uh, and our state's really regulated system for health facilities and their billing leaves us, you know, well in a tough spot with medical care for our inmate population, which the county bears most of. Certainly a, a big problem, and hopefully we can find a fix. Any other issues with local jails, Sarah, that you see popping up in 2023? 
Yeah, I mean, related to this main topic, our wardens are worried about our population who are mentally ill and really need a psychological facility more than a detention center. The state is just short on beds and staff, so we end up with no better option than local jail for way too many people. Not clear where or when the fix can come, but we all know um, it's not the right way to run it right now. Um, no. And I think it's been an issue for a while. All right. And and some of that is is the state simply not having enough buildings, you know, enough facilities and enough beds where they can house people. But then, like, once again, this conversation comes back to this recurring motif that we're back to staffing problems, this time at the state level, that there there just aren't enough people in the State Department of Health, I think this would be, rather than Department of Public Safety, but there aren't enough staff to cover the needs for people who really need psychological services. Yeah, I mean, and that's, like I said before, that's consistent. It's an issue at the state level and the county level, you know, and, and for my issues particularly, it's health, it's environmental health, it's corrections, it's it's all over the place. You know, but we also, we hear that, you know, in the whole public safety side of things, um, just like in health, a lot of the staffing shortages, hard to fill positions, um, you know, to retain the workers you have, and in many cases, just not enough positions approved for the amount of work that has to be done. Yeah, I I feel like on this issue, um, it's it's probably enough to point to the larger, you know, labor universe and how how quirky this labor market feels for employers of all stripes. But I don't want to miss an opportunity to make like one quick, hopefully quick observation about this. I mean, the public sector has this tendency, and Maryland has fallen victim to it, just like almost everybody, I'm sure, that when, when times get tough and, and you're looking at tightening the belt and, and trimming back the budget, one of the things that is a really common thing to do is you go back and say, well, do you have any vacant positions in your agency? And if so, we can abolish a vacant position and not go through the the sort of human agony of laying off a human being, sending out pink slips to to dozens or hundreds of employees. If you just say, hey, that agency, you know, used to have 27 people at the moment, they seem to be getting by okay with 22 and a half. And so we'll just wipe out those final four and a half positions. And that'll be our cost containment for this year. Lo and behold, nobody got fired, nobody got laid off. And the agency sort of limps by with people doing more with less and, you know, other trite little things like that. Abolishing vacant positions sounds good in the moment, but I don't know. I think, I think over the medium and long term, you tend to lose an awful lot by that kind of attrition that every one of those agencies that was doing a good job with 27 people, and then it got trimmed to 22 and a half. And now they're only at 18. Um, you have, workloads for individual staff, uh, you have too much, you know, that's bearing on the people who are there. They retire out, they walk away. It's tough to fill those positions in this weird hiring market. It's especially tough to do so. We're, to some degree, we're reaping a little bit of what we have sown. Public sector sometimes does this. I think we're we're suffering a little bit for having done that. I think so. And, and there's a lot there just keeps coming up across just about every facet of government. I know with some of the agencies and departments I work with closely, there are certainly similar stories. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you both. 
But, but so that's the skin deep look at some of our local jail issues. Um, you know, we got wardens who are trying to do the right thing, but they are asked to do uh, a lot more with a lot less. Um, and that's a, a tough magic act to uh, to pull off. It's pretty difficult. So they're strained to hire and retain as well. So I think that's that's pretty on point, Michael. Okay, so that's our theme, it seems today, Sarah, with a lot of these issues. Oh, yeah. I know. I mean, I was in the room for a session at the one of the Mako conferences a year or two ago, and the central theme was you know, we can just barely tread water with hiring in our jail. It's it's just impossible. And so I think that's going to continue to to be a trend here. And hopefully, again, we can find a way. Uh, and again, I think it's also we're competing with the private sector here as well. And it's a tough job, no doubt about it. But there has to be a, a resolution here. And hopefully, maybe you know, if Congress can get their act together and deal with this. Uh, the Medicaid issue. Uh, hopefully, Maryland can can chip away at that issue as well. But the the problem here comes back to recruiting, retaining staff, and then of course just the money and the resources to to handle a lot of these issues that no one thought about many many years ago. That that local jails would be dealing with addiction and mental health, and the majority uh, of the people that are there, right? I mean that's that's what we see every single day. So it's expensive, it's time consuming, and we can't get the staff. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Got that right. <laughs> but that's 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 sort of where we are. That's part of the challenge in the public sector writ large right now, I think. So. Okay. Well, I mean, it seems like we covered an awful lot of ground here today. Sarah, it sounds like you're going to have your hands full in this first session, but we all work together as a team and we'll pull together where we need to. So, Sarah, I hope you're looking forward to it. It sounds like a lot, but I know you're going to be well prepared. And, and again, we have a great team here at Mako. Yeah, I mean, between the conference um, and then right after that, rolling right into session, it definitely feels very rapid fire. But, you know, I think that's really exciting. So I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Yes. And you mentioned the conference. Of course, that's January 4th through the 6th in Cambridge at the Hyatt there. It's a beautiful venue. It's going to be packed. So you definitely need to be there. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you're not registered yet, please do, because we're going to have a ton of content and we'll be talking a lot about the issues you heard here today. And then, of course, many, many other issues across the spectrum in county government. But we're going to leave it there for today. For Michael Sanderson and Sarah Sample, this is Kevin Canale. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But I need to mention our esteemed producer, Victoria Moss. She's fantastic. We appreciate her very much, and we will talk to you all very soon. <laughs>